This podcast is made possible by the support of our friends at Makeup Designery. For over 20 years, they've educated makeup artists around the world. Many professionals today are MUD graduates. By supporting them, you're supporting this podcast. Check them out at mud.edu. Hi, I'm publisher Michael Key. Welcome to the Makeup Artist Magazine podcast, a show where we have candid conversations with the leaders of the pro makeup world about their art and the pain and glory of working in a creative industry. This episode is with sculptor Randy Bowen. He began as a garage kit creator, and in his 20s, he was the director of product development at Dark Horse Comics. Randy went on to create his own company, Bowen Designs, that has produced over 500, that's right, 500 statues and busts of licensed Marvel characters. His sculpture of Superman was regularly seen on Seinfeld. He has collaborated with such luminaries as Frank Frazetta, Frank Miller, and the great Ray Harryhausen. Unfortunately, we had a technical problem when we recorded this episode, and my microphone sounds like crap. Luckily, Randy sounds great, which is the main thing. Enjoy. Tell me about what you wanted to be when you were a little boy, and where where was this? Uh, well, grew up in southeastern Washington State in pretty much an agricultural community, um, but uh, in from an from an early age, I wanted to be an artist, and it was it was clear pretty early on. I have four, or I have three older sisters, one younger sister. But uh, everything they were learning in school, I think part of the, the hand-eye coordination came from my older sisters having me, uh, like from the time I was three or four, copy the alphabet. And so I could write pretty well even before I got to first grade. And, uh, and that, that little bit of uh, uh, hand-eye coordination, just, it just leapfrogged into everything else. And it, when I was in the first grade, the uh, I was very nervous about going to school. And I remember the teacher said, uh, okay, everyone, what we're going to do, uh, and I'm sure there was lots of other things that we did, but she said, draw a picture of your father's car. Hmm. And uh, I had a hard time even remembering what my father's car looked like. It was probably some boring you know, K car looking thing. Well, K cars were after, but, um, so instead of drawing that, I drew a hot rod with big fat tires and mag wheels and smoke coming out of the back. Like it was burning rubber. No, oh, the other kids are jealous. Cause you think, man, your dad's got a cool car. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I, I said, well, it doesn't really look like that, but I can't remember what his car looks like, but it, that was the first time I remember getting a lot of attention uh, for, for something that I drew. Um, there was that, and I used to draw caricatures from an early age of my, my mom and my siblings and things like that. Um, but it, but it was also, uh, with, I, I was exposed to sculpting early on because when my mom would drop me off at my grandma's for, uh, babysitting or whatever. She, she didn't have toys, but she did have a large box of plasticine clay. And that's what I used to 
sculpt little dinosaur. I had no sculpting tools. It was just with my fingers. And, um, but I was, a I I won't say I was a big fan of Ray Harryhausen. I didn't even know who Ray Harryhausen was at the time, but, uh, I had seen those movies and I didn't connect the dots until much later that they were all the same guy. What's your grandmother doing with a big box of clay? She had a lot of grandkids and she, uh, knew that she needed to keep kids busy. And so, uh, I don't even know if Legos were invented yet. At least we didn't have them, but she had clay. And other than that, um, they had a big, uh, my grandfather built a fish pond on his property. And so we'd go fishing and, but if it was raining, we would play with clay and stuff like that. That's pretty cool. I mean, that that's significant. If your grandmother hadn't had that clay in the box, you wouldn't have been exposed that early. Yeah, yeah. I, I probably would have been sculpting with bread dough, though, if it hadn't have been clay yeah. uh, or, or plasticine or whatever it was. I don't even know. I can't even think of where she got it, unless it was like... I think they use uh, plasticine in floral arrangements or something, maybe. Okay. They used to stab like uh, silk flowers into it. She yeah. may have got it from that. Or they, you know, some hobby store or something. Could be. Which of those Harryhausen movies did you see that were were those inspirations? Mm, well, a uh, six-year-old Randy Bowen, I think, saw One Million B.C. Oh. And so I believe Raquel Welch was in that. Uh, yeah. And so I was glued to the television because not only was there Raquel Welch, there was dinosaurs, which I was probably more interested in at the time. Um, but no, I... Uh, that's in fact when I uh, later on when uh, I was in high school, one of the very first things I sculpted was a Tyrannosaurus Rex, just because I I love dinosaurs. Probably from that early exposure. That was a pivotal movie. Did you ever end up sculpting Raquel? No, no, no. But I used to have that poster. That's one of her iconic images. Yeah, her standing there. Oh yeah, the thighs and the whole thing. Oh. Happened. What's amazing is how good the uh, mascara was in uh, one million years ago. She had beautifully plucked eyebrows, and uh, well, isn't that true of any movie? No matter you know what period it's supposed to be set in, mm-hmm. it always has telltale signs of the period in which it was actually shot. Oh yeah, and so her hair looks very sixties, and yes, her oh yeah, mascara. That's what I loved about. Uh, some of the westerns from the late fifties, early sixties, you'd have Frankie Avalon as a cowboy, but his hair is slicked into a pompadour. And <laughs> when he takes his hat off, how is that pompadour still fluffed up? Right. This is some clever editing. Yes. Yeah. But it's neat those movies that that's one of the things that actually strings us together as a generation are the things that we're inspired by. Mm-hmm. And those early influences when I get together with you and, and some of the uh, other people that are like-minded in this area, we talk about those things that are, that really inspired us. And that's one of those things that stay, they'll, they'll stay with us. Mm-hmm. Well, it's sort of like, uh, there's sort of a correlation between, uh, hunger through your belly and hunger through creativity. Cause a lot of the stuff that was on, TV at the time was crap. And by today's standards, uh, some of the stuff in movies was crap. But at the time, 
you'll take anything. And then when stuff rises above, like Ray Harryhausen's uh, things or... Uh, you know, just at, at, and when you were a kid, same with me, we had the, the ABC movie of the week. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, there's a, a movie that's just scared the hell out of me as a kid. It was called Trilogy of Terror yeah, with yeah, Karen yeah. Black. A little doll with the. Yeah. The yeah, they called it. Yeah, it was called the Zuni Fetish Doll, which doesn't make any sense because it was supposed to be from Africa and the Zuni Indians are from the American Southwest. But. Nobody had the internet. They couldn't uh, fact check, right. I guess, unless they went to the library. Yeah. But uh, no, that movie scared the hell out of me. But uh, And early on, I actually, something like being, doing special effects makeup or special effects, period, just seemed like that's another planet. Um, but the more I would learn and, and read and, and things like that, uh, I, 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 I didn't realize that uh, even doing art was a possibility until I saw a, a 60 minutes segment when I was a kid about people who made toys and they were sort of the, they showed behind the scenes of an R and D department uh, where somebody was figuring out this, uh, like, it was like a Mr. Dentist toy where it had this thing that opened up and you could pull teeth out. And I, and I just remember thinking that's a job. I'll take that. Yeah. And uh, I didn't end up doing that, but it just made me start to think in that direction. And so after that, and you're probably the same way. It's like any anything that the thing that like gets your your motor running early on, you just start to pay attention to it. And early on, we we didn't have access to magazines like Famous Monsters of Filmland or and I don't even think Cinefax and, and some of those other trade magazines were even around at the time until I started going to a little bit larger cities and I and I saw my first famous monsters of Filmland and I started to see all the the these articles about these you know creature feature movies that I would see on TV and it's like someone else besides me knows about this because yeah. I was I was pretty much alone in this small town that I lived in being interested in the kinds of things that I was interested in because you had to either be into hunting and fishing or agriculture or, you know, just very, very, uh, you know, basic interests. And so to be the kid who's the artist in the group was, uh, it was an odd thing. Yeah, you're odd man out. Yeah. I felt the same way when I lived in Texas. They were into like goat roping and motorcycles and yeah. all that. And I'm loving science fiction. Yeah, yeah. And I, I like motorcycles and, and other things also. But uh, to, to be into comic books or something like that, that you were just, people would think you're just weird. Nobody likes comic books, but... It's like, hey, they have them here, so somebody must read them besides me. Exactly. Yeah. On that. So when, um, what was the next step in the evolution of you doing what you're doing? You know, in a small town, you're inspired by this. Then you said you got to some other cities where you saw a famous monster. Mm-hmm. What was the occasion that took you there? Um, we had a, a, this, well, we'd go anything besides just the local. It was almost like a general store. Uh, anything outside of that, you had to drive for 30 miles to the next city and which is, uh, Lewiston, Idaho. That's, uh, you know, that to me, that was the big city mm-hmm. and it's 
probably, you know, 15,000 people or something like that. <laughs> but, but they did have a lot more stores, a lot more stores with lots of magazines. And, uh, I couldn't wait. I, I could never afford to buy the magazines, but I would sit on my knees and, and read these things. And, and, you know, that's when I first found out about famous monsters and all of that. Um, but in, when I was in grade school, I was always the kid who drew, uh, we had an art class and, and, uh, I was the, the star of that art class. It's like you were probably the, the, one of the most artistic kids in when you were going to school. Not at all. I wish you know, you, you would laugh at the sculptures that I did just little things sculpting with a toothpick and a spoon or, or, or whatnot. I really didn't, uh, I mean, I loved science fiction and whatnot, but I was not really drawn to art per se in, until my twenties. Hmm. What was it for you that, that sparked your, uh, that did it for you? Super inspired when I saw that, like, like Star Wars and, and some other th- films that had used existing parts. Oh, that yeah. That to cobble together and combine oh, kit, kit bash, yeah. Yeah, yeah, kit bash. So I was, I was doing that. Usually wouldn't finish it, though. Mm-hmm. In fact, I wouldn't have ended up in makeup if I had succeeded and I tried to build a miniature. Mm-hmm. Like a spaceship or something? Yeah. I was trying to do a, do a ship. I just love, love the ships from, that uh, John Dreikstra and other mm-hmm. people had done from Star Wars. And then, and what was the other thing? Battlestar Galactica. Mm-hmm. Love, and, and even in Star Trek, I loved the, the Klingon Battlecruiser. Oh, so yeah. That was a more interesting design than yeah. Enterprise. So I decided to build one. But since I was poor... I did out of cardboard at first, and so I cut together all the shapes and did all that, and then started putting all the pieces. But when I put on the first layer of paint, I realized there's the corrugation. Then <laughs> <laughs> I realized, no, it's fatally flawed. Mm. And I got discouraged, and I didn't want to start over, so I just set it aside. And I'm kind of glad I didn't because I would, yeah, it would have taken me in a different direction. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. I always loved mass. Yeah, me too. I thought those were, you're talking about famous monsters of film land mm-hmm. and other magazines like that. Always in the back, they had those ads, you know, the Don Post. Yeah. or the, the submarine that you can buy for $7. Yeah. 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 Uh, with, with a periscope <laughs> for $7, I'm picturing taking this thing out to the lake and I'm going, wait, we don't have a trailer for this. How can I, for $7? How does that? Yeah. What was it? A piece of cardboard or Probably. something? Probably. Yeah. I never ordered one. I sure wanted one though. Yeah. Cool. But I I did see those masks, and so I was super inspired by that and wanted to do that. I did a trip with my uncle to Hollywood, and we drove down Hollywood Boulevard. He was going to a, a meeting at uh, Capitol Records, and we drove past his store. Um, I saw in the store all these masks. Was it Don? Monsters. There's had to be Don Post. It was. Uh, it was right next to each other. There was Burt Wheeler's Toys and Hollywood Magic, and now they're all one. I think it was Burt Wheeler's Toys. I think that had the Don Post masks mm. that were in there. But you know, they had those you know bad ads that we saw in the back of the magazines were on horrible print. Oh yeah. Online. This was living color, and they looked beautiful. Oh, yeah. And I'm, I'm having a conniption fit in the seat back when you could ride in the front seat without a seatbelt. Mm-hmm. And we got to go to the monsters. And he said, what are you talking about? <laughs> I said, there's monsters back there. And, he, you know, he's going to his meeting. Yeah. 
And he said, well, maybe we'll, maybe we'll stop by afterwards. And so... Did you get to stop by afterwards? Yeah, we did stop by afterwards. And I saw Planet of the Apes mask. It had oh. hair on it and the whole thing. And but it was gorgeous. Oh, yeah. That's, At least did, my memory of it. Was that your first one that you'd held in your hands? The first one of that quality. Because mm-hmm. usually the masks that I had seen were just the, cast rubber. The thin rubber latex. latex cast rubber. Yeah. And, you know, it was a horrible sculptures like the turd man or whatever mm-hmm. and, and then maybe two colors of paint that's on it and he, when you're a kid even that is kind of cool because you can you instantly transform uh yes. the first one i ever got to hold in my hands it was a don post mask of tor johnson and it was a really nice one and what was cool about it it wasn't some extravagant monster werewolf or something like that it was just a guy an ugly guy and uh a friend of mine i can't remember how he got it i think the mask was at the time 25 or 30 dollars which was big money then. that was huge that was like i don't know 300 dollars in today's uh money and uh i go can i borrow that and uh i took this mask and i i had this this big long wool pea coat and i put a like a like a dock worker's wool hat on and my sister and I, uh, my younger sister, uh, decided to scare my older sister. I wish I could get up and do the whole, uh, demonstration for you, but, uh, it was at night and we were going to meet at this, this park. And so, uh, my sister went ahead and met my, my other older sister and I started running toward them in this very strange gate. And, uh, I'm lucky I didn't get stabbed because I think my sister was packing a pocket knife for protection or something, but it scared the shit out of her. But, uh, I never got so much mileage out of a piece of rubber. Well, take that back maybe another time, but as, as a mask, that was, that was gold for me. But the masks were a great entry point, I think for a number of people, uh, in the industry that, kind of got hooked on mass and that was their entry point into learning other things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know Rick Baker was into mass when he was a young kid. And for me, it wasn't just masks. I mean, I was interested in, uh, you know, when they would start to do behind the scenes specials on certain movies and you're starting to get a little bit more of that in the 1970s. Um, but I just knew that I wanted to, I thought I was going to be an illustrator or a comic book artist. Mm -hmm. And so I had just about an equal interest in comics as I did in movie monsters. And, uh, and I, fortunately I had a couple of really good art teachers. I mean, they weren't great artists, but they, they knew how to not step on a kid's dreams. And, uh, because I was, probably the best one in the class. And I don't say that to make myself sound cool. I just was, I was just, there was nobody else cared about it. Mm -hmm. And I was in there after school and doing my own thing. And, uh, whether it be, um, you know, pottery or whatever, I just, I just, that you just have an affinity for it. Um, but when I, uh, when I was in high school, my parents got a divorce and, uh, my mom and myself and my younger sister, moved to a different city and it happened to be the same, what I thought was a big city, Lewiston, Idaho. And they had a class there called ICA, which was industrial creative arts. And it's the first time I came in to, uh, contact with an airbrush. 
and bronze casting and uh, like Dremel tools or moto tools. It, I don't even think, I don't even know if Dremel was a company at the time, but working with grinders and things like that. And I was just loving it. I was just, that was an unexpected bonus to my parents' divorce. Uh, well, it certainly expanded your skill set and oh, yeah. knowledge base of uh, how to create things. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, the airbrush thing was huge for me because it, uh, I was able to do atmospheric perspective and start to do these photorealistic renderings. And uh, I was a badger. Uh, you know what? It probably was a badger. Yeah. Might have been a pache, but I think my teacher only... Let me use that on occasions because he had a double action pache mm-hmm. uh, airbrush. But uh, I, I, I was suddenly aware that it was it was a whole different ball game because I was sitting here airbrush doing an airbrush landscape, and uh, I was in a spray booth, and uh, and I and I stood back like this, and all of a sudden I heard people clapping, and I turned around, and there's a 25 people standing behind me. I didn't know that they were watching me do it they had the whole class had stopped from what they were doing and were that's cool yeah it was it was disconcerting because i was going how many times did i pick my nose during this and (laughs) but uh but that was great and i got to do some bronze sculptures and uh then uh you know it was it was weird you you graduate and you go now what am i going to do i'm in lewiston idaho there's no there's nothing here for me uh, other than I did sign painting and just anything art related I could figure out to do. Uh, so I, I met a girl. She was moving to California to to uh, become uh, uh, a head nurse at a facility. And uh, so I when I moved down there, I went, wow, I'm one step closer to Hollywood and doing special effects and things like that. And... Uh, so when I, when I was there, I, I started to realize there's kind of an effects industry even here in the Bay Area in California. Mm-hmm. And I started to meet people. And uh, so one day I was looking at this just little local four-page little uh, community magazine, newspaper, almost like a nickel saver or something like that. There's a guy named Randy Dutra. And, uh, Randy Dutra, uh, worked for Phil Tippett and he was working on a series of dinosaurs. And I went, huh, he's right here in the same town I am. So I just went in the phone book and found the name Dutra. It was the only, (laughs) that was the only Dutra. And I called up and I said, uh, are you do, does Randy Dutra live here? And, uh, I think it was his mom. And, uh, she said, well, that's my son. Yeah, he's here. And so I talked to him and he came and he, he was looking at my illustrations and he was kind of going, mm, yeah, yeah. And then he looked at some wax sculptures I had done in high school that were years old, covered in fuzz. And he goes, huh, this is pretty good. He goes, you should do this. And, uh, so I went, okay. And so that, that's what, what it, and strangely, they're in about in the same scale that I ended up working in for 25 years. Um, but, uh, 
we were, uh, I, you know, we, we didn't stay in contact, but he had, he had, uh, made some connections. I got to go to Phil Tippett's studio oh, in, cool. in the Bay area. He, he had a, a maquette of Jabba the Hutt covered in dust on a workshop table that was just shoved to the back. And even then I had a sense of, uh, that would, that's gotta be worth a lot of money. Cause it's, that that had just come out, you know. Mm-hmm. Jedi had only been out for two or three years when I was down there. So we're talking mid eighties. Yeah, he was he was had a, a setup for stop motion uh, in his shop for Honey I Shrunk the Kids, and they were animating the the ant scene in the giant blades of grass, mm-hmm. and so it was the, just getting these little tastes of this is possible. And and Phil actually said he goes, hey, if you want to set up a little corner in my shop, you can do it. And I just, I was, oh no, I can't do that. You know, he probably wanted some free labor, you know, which I would have done because how can you go to, you can't go to school at the time. You can't go to school for that. Oh yeah. And just to be immersed in it by osmosis, you'd be gaining so much information. Oh yeah. Just walking through there, you gain a lot of information. And, uh, I met another guy named Tony McVeigh who had worked on star Wars. He's, uh, he worked on the big pig guards and on, uh, salacious crumb and a bunch of other stuff he worked on the superman movie and amazing amazing sculptor and uh his uh protege at the time is a guy named mark newman who uh we be ended up becoming friends and he's he's the one who turned me on to uh super sculpy and he was doing things in the gift industry and oh that early yeah See, yeah. I didn't hear of super sculpting until quite a while after that yeah at the time they only i think at first they only had this white chalky junk hmm. and then it became this more flesh colored and a lot smoother to work with. Yeah. And to me that was magical from going from working with wax, which was very difficult because I didn't have all the right tools and things like that to Sculpey was amazing. Uh, but that led to me just starting to focus on doing these small things. And, uh, so, uh, I started working at a, a company that made uh, displays for shopping malls. So I was sculpting giant seashells for different displays or Santa houses. I learned how to do drafting. And so I understood things from sort of an X, Y, Z aspects and I could draw those and send them to somebody else that could build them. So I start to understand things in the round and around about that same time, uh, something called garage kits were starting to make themselves known in the modeling magazines and things like that. And silicone molds, you know, instead of just being two or three different kinds of silicone that were available at the time, now there's what dozens of different types of, of silicone that you can mold things with. And so, uh, I answered an ad in a, hobby magazine that I could make 500 bucks and 500 bucks at the time was a lot. I sculpted a a Morlock from the time machine, uh, for a company called lunar models. And, and then I'm starting to find out there's this whole subculture of model builders. And so, uh, I meet a few people who are making garage kits in the Bay area. I meet a guy from who has a a model shop. He's from China. And he's, his name was Ernest Kwan. And uh, he has uh, contacts in manufacturing in China. I'm going, you can get things made in China? This was all like 
nobody. This is amazing. You know, you have to be Hallmark or you have to be some huge corporation. He goes, Oh no, we know people who do this. And, and so I, I took that information, kept it in the back of my mind. In the meantime, I'm pouring and casting my own models in my garage in the Bay area. And I start going to comic book conventions and, and I have my little paint up displays. And within two years, I was approached by DC comics, Marvel comics and dark horse comics to start doing their figures. And they said, but we need manufacturing. Uh, I guess, can you manufacture? I go, no, I can't, but I know a, a place where I can get these manufactured. And so I started working with manufacturing and, uh, I moved from the Bay area. I was, I, uh, offered a position at dark horse to become their product development director which just meant I made their models and toys and things like that. Worked for them for two years, and I realized these guys are making all the money. I'm just getting peanuts compared to to what uh, these other guys are doing. I thought I'm just going to save my money and you know see how this goes. So uh, I had done stuff for for DC, Marvel, uh, Dark Horse, and uh, they. Marvel uh, wasn't that successful with the, the things that they were trying to do, and basically, I was I was the the brains behind I, this. The woman that was at Marvel was just parroting everything I would say, and they they thought that she was she knew what was going on. She didn't have a clue, um, but I did, and so I made them an offer, and they said, "Sure, you can do statues." And so, with the first statue that I released, I made as much money as I would have made a, for a year's salary at dark horse. Wow. Which was that first one? What was it? Um, I think we, I started with doing, uh, mini busts and I, I started with mini busts because, uh, I wasn't sure how these things would be received. And, but I, what I did know is I, because I had worked in with models and people who collected Aurora model kits, uh, I knew that there was a sort of a collector's mentality. And I knew that if I would have started with Spider-Man, Hulk, Captain America, and Wolverine as my first four characters, that'd probably be all anyone would collect because it's like the famous ones. So I started with obscure stuff. I started with the Mole Man, who's like a villain from the Fantastic Four. And then, then I'd throw in a famous one like the Hulk, and then I'd do a another one that was just semi-famous and people are going, what is he doing? But the numbers were growing exponentially. And, uh, so, so Marvel's letting you make these. Yeah. Yeah. I was having them produced in China and just, I, I didn't take out any loans. I didn't have any investors. I was just from my own savings. Yeah. And so I was just taking my, uh, any profits I would make, I'd just roll it back into the business. And then I said, Hmm, these are going okay. Let's do statues. I think the first full size statue I did with Marvel was, uh, uh, daredevil and, uh, worked with Joe Casada, who is like, uh, one of the head honchos at Marvel. Now amazing artist. He designed it. But before that I was, I, I had done some other notable stuff for DC comics, which was one of the ones that I'm most well known for, which is one of my least favorite sculptures is a statue of Superman. That's in every episode of Seinfeld. It's in the, in the background. And you, you see, I think it's 
not in the first season, but it's in every other season after that. Is this a full-size one? Or? Yeah, it's a statue about yay big. And uh, I met an art dealer who said, oh, you should meet Dave Mandel. And I go, who's Dave Mandel? And he goes, he's a writer and one of the executive producers for Seinfeld. He's a big comic art collector. And so uh, we made a connection. Dave said, yeah, come down to a taping. So my, uh, who's now my ex-wife and I went down and got to be in an episode of Seinfeld. We got Jerry in the cast to sign my Superman statue. And that was amazing. And, uh, but in the back of my mind, I thought uh, I had, because I had been to Hollywood a few times, I got to go to Stan Winston studio and K and B effects and things like that. I didn't like Los Angeles that much. Yeah. I just, I just thought I, the guys that are working in these shops are working their balls off to, yep. and, and plus it's like they'll wor- be working for four or five months on a show. And then it's like scramble for your next gig and, and just the traffic and everything and nothing against Los Angeles. I'm sure there's nice areas and, but it seemed to me like to, to have a good life in LA, you have to have a lot of money and be like sort of hooked up. And I just, I couldn't see myself working there. So I decided, okay, I'm going to make a go of this and just make this my thing. And so for about four or five years, I had this open playing field. I was, I was doing stuff for all the major companies and uh, I got to do a series of star Wars bronzes, got to go to Lucasfilm. I never got to meet George, but I met a lot of the, the people that, that worked there and got to go into the, inner sanctum of, uh, Lucasfilm and, and ILM and things like that. All, and I still love this stuff. Uh, and, and yet because I didn't work there, I think I'm still more of a fan than people who are sort of jaded by the whole industry. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, and I don't know, do you still have that same kind of, uh, affinity for, the genres uh oh absolutely yeah i'm first and foremost people you know especially that are not in the industry they say when, you, when you're watching the movie it must be hard because you just see all that so no i'm watching the movie like you are I, there are people i do know who do that they're just looking at so technically and you know that's fine that's not me though when i'm watching a film or, or if i'm going on a film set or you know, come into a place like yours. It's like, wow, this is just so cool. I still enjoy that. Like getting a tour of Weta, mm-hmm. you know, looking at all the the wide range of things that they do. Mm-hmm. Like when I went to Lucasfilm, and it was a little sad because they said, oh, oh, this was the last animatronic creature that we ever did. Mm-hmm. This was the last miniature spaceship we did. And this was the last and the last. Oh, because everything is digital now. Yeah, the digital agenda. That mm-hmm. was a little bit sad when um, when I was there. Yeah, that's kind of a drag. I mean, there's still a little bit of it here and there, not with ILM per se, but uh, it's nice to know that people like Peter Jackson have have, uh, still have that reverence for things that are tactile. And there's something still about, uh, for me, about uh, live models. There's some X factor to the lighting that is still more real. I mean, it's, it's getting harder and harder to to tell the difference, but, uh, but there's something about the bet to me, the best is a perfect blend and a synthesis of the two, Mm -hmm. you know, because there's, there's something about miniatures of, especially like buildings and things like that, 
that there's always a certain tell to, to, uh, digital effects that's still there. Um, but it, you know, it's getting better and better. You like the Tyrell building and, and Blade Runner. Mm-hmm. That thing is amazing. Oh yeah. It's just so cool. when you see the speeders going to that thing and you see it and, and you know, maybe there's some little thing you can pick out, but it's tough. Yeah. It's so good. Mm-hmm. It, and that's one of the things I'm digging about the Mandalorian because there's oh, a yeah. lot of practical and I get I'm at least from what I, my understanding is all the ships are actual models no kidding yeah because yeah, I uh, I just sat down and binged watched the first five episodes I made the mistake of starting that thing at about 8.30 at night and so <laughs> I was really tired the next day because yeah, I, I just went I had to you have to keep going. No, I love that show. Oh, and the Mandalorian ship, his ship is it's really cool. It's a neat design. And, yeah. And it has, it feels like it has weight to it. And oh, it, it looks like a functional ship. Yeah. Uh, what I like is that it has elements of old World War II bombers with the way the, the uh, cockpit is in the front. And it, it looks like there's nothing extraneous about it. It just looks like these two big ass engines and just uh, something to deliver a payload. Yeah, that's, you know, that's where, I mean, of course we're biased that we think that something that's tangible is better than pixels. And there's, I do agree with you, there's places for pixels. Like in Gladiator, when you saw all of ancient Rome and the way they're coming down, it was like, oh my gosh, that's ancient Rome. Mm-hmm. That would be difficult to do practical. I think those are areas where... Or even in Peter Jackson's King Kong, mm-hmm. you see 1933 New York. I was just going to say that's a, a good example. I was uh, I have a great affinity for mid 20th century, mm-hmm. and when Kong was up fighting and all that, I'm watching a little bit of that. But I'm looking, hey, look in the Hudson. Are there any of the oh, yeah. ocean liners I'm looking for? Well, and I'm I'm sure that they used uh, city maps sure. to to make sure everything was as spot on as they could get it. And what I thought after uh, Jackson's King Kong, and I haven't seen it in a couple of years, but uh, I thought, now they've got digital New York. What else can they do from that time period? And uh, I, I kept hoping that, okay, they've got to use that for something else. Hmm. Um, I like that. But, I would uh, love to see more stuff from that period. Oh, yeah. I think, and I, I talked to, uh, familiar with Frank Darabont? Uh, yes, dir- I know his name. Yeah, directed the Green Mile and Shawshank and stuff like that. I knew uh, Frank from before he was even a director because he collects a lot of this stuff and he bought he bought a bronze from me and some other stuff at one time. But um, I was asking him because he at one time he was going to direct a Doc Savage movie, and I said, "What's up with Doc Savage?" He goes, "You know, if, if there's two or th- you know this is if there's two or three." Uh, box office disappointments that are period pieces like uh, the phantom or, you know, mm-hmm. things that are period Hollywood. Go- it's death. It's not going to, it's not going to happen. It's like, right. that's wrong thinking. It's not the period. It's the story. Spot on. Yeah. The, the, that's why George Lucas got turned down by every studio in town because they go, Oh yeah. Start, you know, science fiction doesn't sell. Yeah. Probably had the same thing with Raiders of the Lost Ark. They probably thought, period piece and they and I, what i hear is they'll say well that's the exception that makes the rule it's like no 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 other thing can can make it but they did the the i think that mummy 
uh, with uh, was a fairly successful franchise, at least the first couple ones. Yeah, they, they were. Um, but I love stuff like that. To me, it's anytime uh, you can, and that's not even. I wasn't even alive, but what I like about it is that the world was still a mysterious place. You didn't know everything. You couldn't see everything from satellite. You didn't, not everything was discovered. There were still, you know, species on the planet that were still being discovered. And that's why when you set things back then, it's, it's great because not everybody has a cell phone. You have to just rely on your wits or, you know, what have you to be able to, survive in that world. I'm fascinated that you did not end up actually making movies because that's usually the path. Like all the other sculptors I know, I know some really gifted people that are just amazing. I think I could. I just think I never, you just didn't, you just ended up that path. The gravity no. didn't take you there, but gravity took all the rest of them there. But your path ended up a little bit like, do you know who Michael Burnett is? Yeah. Yeah, Michael Burnett's a little bit that way. I mean, Michael has certainly done stuff in television and movies. He's done a bit of it. But really where I think like where he's he's really excelled is in all this entrepreneurial side and mm-hmm. creating licensing and then doing, doing all of that. I think that uh, even what he did with Universal Studios and creating the their Halloween thing, whatever they call that. Mm-hmm. You know, he set them up to, to do all those things. He's very entrepreneurial, and as you are. It, for me, it was a morbid fear of abject poverty because I was so poor as a kid. I didn't want to do. I, I just thought, what can I do that is? And I'm basically lazy. Also, what can I do that has the uh, least amount of work with the biggest payday? Because yeah. I don't want to be poor, I just don't want to be poor. That's that's and I when I when I looked at uh, different career paths, is I wanted to be a musician at one point. I had used to practice guitar, and if you don't want to be poor, don't be a musician. <laughs> yeah, and I thought, well, how many successful musicians are in their seventies still working? Okay, we have Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. That's yeah. about it, yeah. you know, with a few exceptions. And I thought, well, I could be a sculptor and be an old man and doing this kind of thing. And uh, no, but once I, I hit pay dirt with doing licensed stuff and manufacturing, I, that's and able to start taking care of my mom and, you know, and just doing things like that. I, and cause for me, the, the lesson was, uh, uh, there's this actress that, okay, the show that used to be on called ER. Yeah. And there's an actress on that show named, I think her name is Juliana Margulies. Okay. Uh, she was offered uh, 20 million a year if she kept going with the show. Wow. And uh, now nobody even knows who she is. We all know George Clooney, right. and he was on that show. Uh, but she turned it down because she wanted to follow other things. And I remember hearing this on Entertainment Tonight going, Idiot! Yeah. Just do it for one more year. Oh yeah, you got twenty million. This is crazy. You're not gonna be, you know, the, the next Oscar-winning actress. Just do it for one more. Or, or people that are on sitcoms that are offered a, a million a year or four million or whatever it was. I just thought I'm just gonna ride this out as long as I can because who knows when things are gonna get changed. And now things are changing because. Uh, like with the film industry, things are going digital, which is 
a good thing and it's also a bad thing because you can also just bootleg stuff and just make it at your own house now. So within the next five to 10 years, we're all probably going to have digital printers. So instead of selling statues, you'd just be able to download one and print it if you want. Yeah, could be that. It is really, I, I look and I really do. I marvel at how your path and where it took you because probably when you came down to LA, it was more at the height of when oh, yeah. the effects was riding high and the sculptors were... You know, superstars. Like yeah, yeah, yeah they, were, they were superstars. And I still love all those guys. I mean, to, to meet people like Rick Baker and Steve Wang and Chris Wallace and all my heroes, and they're still my heroes. You know, that's amazing to get to meet those guys. Yeah, they were, they, they were huge in what they were doing. But it's... They're now, most of them are trying to kind of figure out like the kind of thing that you're doing. They're trying to make lateral moves into either fine art or they're doing things with museums or mm-hmm. like Steve Wang's doing his things. That's more, some of it's amusement park, some of it's more permanent installation things. Mm-hmm. But yeah. still beautiful work. Oh, yeah. yeah amazing. And, and a little bit of uh, merchandise uh, yeah. stuff that they do as well. They're, they're, some of them are just beginning to look at what you've been doing for years. Mm-hmm. You ended up kind of jumping ahead of where most of where that's going, which is a, it's unfortunate there's not as much practical there and that they're, they're not riding as high. Mm-hmm. That's one of the reasons I wanted to do this interview because I'm sure there's a lot of sculptors that are going, wow, Randy's got this dialed in. But it's, it's some great things that were just a fortune for you to like to run into the guy who knew the manufacturing in, mm-hmm. in, in China. Yeah. Those little things in life, oh, these intersections, you think, oh, that's kind of interesting. And you put that in the back of your hat. Well, that's, you have to, uh, there, there's two ways to look at it. You can look at it as I was so lucky I met that guy. But the other part of it is I put myself into a position. I was seeking it as well. So if you don't put yourself in that position, you're not going to be lucky. Exactly. You know, yeah. if you're sitting at home and, and you're not out there meeting people, networking and, and you know, and yeah. find out what's going on. That's how you ran across that. Yeah. You know, what was lucky for me though. Hmm. It was crazy. I, I, uh, your mother, grandmother having the clay, the, the <laughs> gra- grandma's clay box. Um, no, I met a guy, his name is Mike Wick, and he ended up working for Henson. And, but his, we used to hang out. He, he, I always knew Mike because he had this big Ford van with a, a sculpture of his face on one side and a beautiful uh, half-naked woman on the other side. I go, oh, Mike's here because his, his weird van is pulling up. It had two big horns on the uh, uh, animal horns on the top as well. But his brother was selling this, this series of cassette tapes, uh, of motivational speakers. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so he left some at my house. I can't remember what the deal was. And I thought this is the dumbest thing I've ever seen, but I started listening to these motivational tapes. And one of the, the lines, I can't remember, even remember who the speaker was. It was pre Anthony Robbins or anything mm-hmm. like that. But, uh, he, one of the lines this guy said is, uh, and now it's probably just a trite cliche, but it's like, if you're driving a car and you're, and you look off this way, you tend to drive that direction. And so be careful what you look at. Sorry. Uh, 
because that's where you're going to go. If you're looking, if you're looking at ways to, to make money in a criminal venture, you're going to go that way. Yeah. Or if you're looking, how, how can I use, uh, my, whatever my gifts are to help people or a cause that I believe in, you're going to go that way. And, uh, that's what I, what I believe. And I try to keep that in mind all the time. It doesn't always work, but that's the, the general way I think about it. If somebody was going to put together the album of Freddie Bowen's greatest hits, <laughs> what would they be? You mean, uh, sculpturally yeah. or yeah, the things that you've created? Um, well, uh, one of my, oh, okay. Here's another pivotal moment in my life. When I was a, a kid, uh, the, okay, this is a roundabout way of answering this, but uh, my dad had this uh, shoe repair slash saddle shop in this town that I lived in. So um, right next door to me was a uh, drugstore. And at the time when they would get comic books in, whatever didn't sell, they would tear the cover off and throw it in the, in the garbage. And so at the end of the month, I was dumpster diving to get all these comic books because I couldn't afford to buy them. So I was getting comic books, but not only did they have, uh, you know, comic books by Marvel and DC and Archie and all this kind of stuff, but they also had eerie and creepy and, and stuff like this. And in those magazines, there were ads for these posters of these barbarians with dragons and all of this kind of thing. But they were the images were only slightly larger than a postage stamp, but they looked like photographs to me. I went, well, there can't be a woolly mammoth charging head on at a camera with a barbarian with a spear. And, but I saved those and I just I went, what is this? And then I, later on, I, I started seeing this art on book covers and album covers of a guy named Frank Frazetta. Mm. And so for me, that was a pivotal thing to see like that guy with you, Dick Smith and people like this, but you know, jump cut. 20 years later, I'm sitting in Frank Frazetta's house with Frank saying, Hey, you want some cheese and coffee? And I go, I've never thought of having cheese with coffee, but sure. Of course you're Frank Frazetta, but to, to get to, to meet him and then do the death dealer, which is probably, uh, one of his most famous thing, big barbarian on a big black horse was on album covers and all sorts of things. Uh, that's probably, and the reason I mentioned that one as one of the foremost is because uh, sentimentally, the story about the dumpster diving and, and just that, you know, two anchor points in my life experience. And to think if I can associate myself with people who are uh, considered of the utmost quality in what they do, that it, a little, a little, if even just a little rubs off on me. I will be ahead of the game. And so, uh, that's, that's one, uh, geez, I've done with Marvel. I think I've done close to 500 sculptures over the years. That's a lot. Yeah. And I mean, I didn't do it all myself. I, but I hired people that I like, you know, I got to, at, I, at one point I even got to hire Chris Wayless to sculpt a creature from the black lagoon. I had the guys from uh, Amalgamated Dynamics did some Universal Monsters for me. And Ray Harryhausen. I got to hire Ray Harryhausen. No yeah. Now, he did this little King Kong uh, piece that he, it was a maquette 
that he had already had in the works uh, for a, I don't know, 30 foot tall bronze that was going to go in Munich or something like that as a tribute. It's the King Kong as he's breaking out of his shackles when he's on the stage. But to, and then, you know, getting to, again, from a, a little kid watching these movies who I had no idea who it was to, I should show you this picture, uh, having dinner with Ray Harryhausen and his wife and kind of getting drunk with Ray Harryhausen was, and I'm in a, I've got a mullet down to here. And, uh, but what a great night that was. Oh yeah. Now, why did they, I'm curious, first of all, that's an incredible experience. Yeah. Those are amazing. Why would not Marvel just hire Ray to do that? Well, that was through Dark Horse, but uh, it's because, uh, well, I wasn't, do- I was the head of the department at Dark Horse. So, oh, it's true. Yeah, so I couldn't possibly do everything that we were doing all by myself. So that's when I started hiring other people. And let me tell you, it's a lot better instead of competing against all these world class artists to be the guy who hires world-class artists they start to become nicer to you instead of being in competition with you um but i never felt i was in competition i was always a fan of other people's art and i just always wanted to learn you know that was my thing and and it's still that way i just i just want to learn i i just want to and if i can't learn i can still appreciate can somebody do what you do now or is it all tied up uh, I think I know what you're saying. You, you couldn't do it the way I did it back then because now everybody understands it. Now it's a thing. When I first started doing this, it, it wasn't even a category of collectibles uh, other than Aurora model kits and maybe some, uh, precious moments, collectible little porcelain figurines. It didn't even exist as a category. Now there's probably 50 companies that are all making everything. I mean, you, you name the property, somebody's making it. Yeah. It's all changed. You, you're kind of like when George Lucas said, okay, you know, for the first star Wars movie, I'll, but I want the merchandising. Oh yeah. You can have that. Oh yeah. They're not valuing it. And then he ends up making more money from the merchandise than he does the movie. Yeah. That's uh that's, uh, I don't know if you've caught this. It's called the toys that made us. Have you ever seen this show? No. It's on uh, net. Good, oh, it's fantastic. It's the behind the scenes story of like masters of the universe and GI Joe. And, uh, you're talking to these kind of quirky people from back in the day, but the, just the story behind masters of the universe itself, that was nothing existed like that at that time. There was the 12 inch GI Joes, but to make a little muscular guy, that's crazy. You know, that nothing like that existed for boys toys. It was boys playing with dolls odd, but now it's a accepted industry. Yeah. Things like that. I love those kinds of stories. Like just even, you know, when you hear of Walt Disney doing animation out of his garage and those types of stories always appeal to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I respect people who, who try to make innovations because it's hard. It's hard to be different um, and to try to set yourself apart. In fact, uh, one of the best pieces of advice I ever got was from an illustrator 
and just fantastic human being is a guy named William Stout. Bill Stout, he's uh, done everything. Album covers, uh, was one of the production designers on Conan and a, just endless career. But uh, he's one of the first pros I ever met in tangentially from the world of comics. But he said, uh, just always get credit. Always get name credit. Make sure your your name is associated with it. And Smart. so... You know, because before then, you know, people who made toys, who made anything, didn't, sculptors never got credit. Right. You know, it was people in comics were just starting to get credit. And uh, because, you know, you don't want your artists to become a commodity because then they'll start wanting more money. But one of the things that, uh, that I did is I always, not only did I try to hire good people, I made sure their name was on the box mm. because... Once people have that, it's, it's sort of silly. In, a, in one regard, it makes me think of uh, Steve Martin saying, my name is in the phone book. You know? <laughs> but yeah. it validates you. you yeah, know? It's, and it's like, it's, it's, it's imprint. And it's, it, it's sort of like people then want to work for you. Right. you know? even, if they're, uh, even if they don't, like, like somebody who has minimal talent, but you can see something there, it, it gives them the impetus to proceed. And you go, this is something. This is, I mean something to somebody. And to see it in print, it's weird. It's a psychological thing. Speaking of, you know, advice, what career advice would you have for, you know, sculptors starting out now? What direction do you think they should go? Well, uh, learn digital. Because that I, I personally still like the tactile quality of moving clay around, but when you work with art directors, everybody wants to see digital. A uh, good friend of mine, uh, his name is Miles Tevis, and he's an amazing illustrator and a sculptor. <laughs> and uh, but he considers himself a dinosaur in this industry now because everyone wants to see. The, even your rough drafts, they want to see digital and they will say, well, I can't see what the eyelashes look like. Could you zoom in and go, this, the eye is an eighth of an inch wide. You're not going to see it. They go, well, we need to see it. And it's a lot of times it's just art directors trying to justify their position and things like that. And it's stuff that doesn't even matter, but that's the way the industry is gone. You know, people need to see digital and it, it to me, I, I'm going to learn how to do ZBrush and these different programs. Because if I think I have to sculpt, like let's say a pair of angel wings, I really only do want to do one. Right. I, I don't want to do one. That's a mirror image, mm -hmm. I, you know, unless it's in a completely different pose or something, but it's, it's just another tool in the toolbox. Sure. Um, but I, I hope that traditional sculpting, painting, creating never goes away. Uh, because it just, it seems like it's, we're losing part of our humanity in some ways. A little bit like movie posters, you know, the, the great Drew Struzan and oh, yeah. all his wonderful works. And, and how often do you see an illustrated movie poster anymore? Not very it's often. It's rare. It's all Photoshop and photos. And I think the last one I saw was for uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I think that was an illustrated poster. Yeah, I think you're right, actually. I think it might be. It might have been even a, I don't know if it was... Drew Struzan, who who did it, but it was somebody who was sort of aping that yeah. style. 
Yeah, usually it is when they're trying to make something be a throwback. They, it's just illustrated posters are not, not a thing now. No, it's mostly photography, right? Oh, yeah, it's mostly photography. So hopefully that people will continue to enjoy sculpture. I think they will, because if nothing else, they like to experience it in person. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would hope. Yeah, just it, but it's, it's the lines are, are blurred now, you know, because you can, uh, I, I used to say, well, I want to see the fingerprints and the tool marks. And that's to me the the coolest stuff is to see that a human being, it's almost like a magic trick, you know, to be able to take something that's a lump of nothing and make it into like a living, breathing thing is mm -hmm. amazing. Especially when you're talking about prosthetics or, or something like that. It's that's the magic. And the, it seems like it loses something. It, it doesn't, I mean, it's, it's still human beings creating the art, but, uh, I don't know. It's, it just seems like because there's a, it's sort of like the difference between, uh, hunting with a high powered, uh, semi-automatic rifle and bow hunting. There's mm -hmm. the bow hunting to me is a, has a cooler factor to it because it's harder to do. It takes more skill. Um, but not to say there aren't some brilliant digital artists out there. Anything you haven't done yet that you're wanting to do? Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, basically just, uh, create my own stuff. I've been working on other people's, uh, properties for so long that a lot of people think, well, he can only do superheroes or he can only do comic book characters or cartoon characters or something. I was like, I can do a lot of stuff. I just haven't done it because I, I've always been so worried about, uh, being a starving artist that I've just wanted to do things that will, uh, pay. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I, I, what I want to do, I've always been jealous of, uh, people who just create for the sake of creating and worry about the monetary aspect of it later. I'm in a position now where I don't have to work. So I think I'm going to do a little bit more of my own creating and it's going to, it's going to have the, uh, the earmarks of, all my influences as a kid. Cause that's the stuff I love. I'm space monsters with big brains or Frankenstein or Harry housing care. It's going to be a blend of, of, of things. Sure. I, I don't even know what it's going to be yet, but that's kind of the direction I'm going. Well, I'm sure it'll be fun. Yep. On that. Thanks man. You bet. Thank you for listening to the makeup artist magazine podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe. If you want to spread the word, give us a five-star review and tell your friends. This show is available on Spotify, iTunes, and anywhere you listen to podcasts. Visit us online for more great content at makeupmag.com. I'm Michael Key. Thanks for listening.